No, listen. You guys think cops is like the standard? No, <laughs> no. Cops is difficult. Cops is difficult. It's so difficult. I think that is the assumption. You know that we brown and colored people across the land, we sound the same, we talk the same. But I mean, I love that the three of us are here now, from elders from the Northern Cape, from Cape Town, and we're confirming it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> it's not true. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Open Book Podcast series, where we bring you fascinating and important conversations between local and international authors. I'm Fasti Karlitz, and I'll be listening to these conversations with you. In today's episode, Chase Reese talks to Terri-Ann Adams and Linthea Julius. Linthea is a poet whose debut collection is called Aidi Cruz, and Terri-Ann is an author whose debut novel, Those Who Live in Cages, has just been published. Both these writers are writing about places historically underrepresented in South African literature. Kimberley, Springbok, Eldorado Park. This conversation explores what it's like to write about one's home and the complexities and joys that come from making one's community and lived experience visible through art, as well as about colored language and culture in different parts of South Africa. This discussion is chaired by Chase Reese, an author, columnist, and playwright from Ocean View in Cape Town. His novel is called Guinness, which was adapted from his play of the same name, and he has a bi-weekly column in the Rapport newspaper called Psychovata. This is such a fun and lively conversation between three young, very exciting authors. I hope you enjoy it. Here's their conversation. Hi, this is Chase Reese. I'm very excited to be doing this podcast today. We've got two brilliant authors from South Africa, and I'm going to just actually ask them to introduce themselves. So let's start with you, Linthea. Introduce yourself, please. Hi, I'm Linthea Julius. I was born in Springbok, grew up in Kimberley, and I studied at the University of the Free State, where I got my honors degree in philosophy. And Eddie Cruz is my first poetry anthology. Excellent. Thank you, Linthea. And how are you? Where are you now? Where are you calling us from? I'm in Bloemfontein. Bloemfontein. At the Bermuda. <laughs> I'm going back on Sunday. Uh. And I got a new puppy, so I'm a mother now. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> what is his name is Bukowski Bukowski wow <laughs> beautiful I'm also going to ask Terry Ann Terry Ann is our second person on the panel Terry Ann will you introduce yourself please alrighty hi everybody my name is Terry Ann Adams I'm from Eldorado Park and uh, currently now live in Vatpoorkie Roerapoort in Joburg I did my honors at the University of Pretoria in history, and I am just a first-time novelist. Yes, um, my book, Those Eleven Cages, has recently hit the shelves. An excellent, Terry. And with your first book, your debut, Those Who Live in Cages, it really is, for me, an epic novel, right? So you set it in Eldorado Park. And what I really loved about your book, Terry, is how you really got that community feel. So it is an intimate look at life through the eyes of and voices of five women. So it is also very personal. But at the same time, you get the vastness of this community, on the page like you've captured the energy of the place and its people so well like it really is an ode to Eldorado Park so I'd like to ask you Terry Ann why was it important for you to write about a colored community and a colored place like Eldorado Park 
Um, first of all, thank you for all the high praise. Wow. <laughs> no, for, for me, writing about elders was important because growing up, um, all I got to see was Sea of the Land Gallads and then Gallads in, in Cape Town. And everything, when you Google Eldorado Park, the first thing you'll see, obviously now with the Nathaniel Julius case, that's the first thing that's going to pop up. Before that, it would be drug-infested community, Eldorado Park. And I was just like, this is really nonsense because we also have our own little moments, our seven land moments where we are just normal and, and, and we're not just always just drug infested. And I also wanted to give an ode to the community that raised me and the aunties and the bashes and all of those things that made me who I am today. And you did it so well, really. Like I say, it is an ode. It's a, to sound cliche, but it feels like a love letter to this place. Uh, very well done, Terry Ann. Uh, Lynthia, your book, Eighty Cruz, <laughs> is a stunning work. It's a major book. Did I count 62 poems? Is it 62 poems in this compilation? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so it's, it's a major work. And what I loved about this is you, Lynthia, have such a fresh voice. It's so unique. I've not read anything like this before. Your images are so beautifully specific to the Northern Cape. And you write about your community with great sensitivity. And I especially love the language use, the Namakwalansa Afrikaans is so interesting and unique also on the page. So you, Lentia, you were born in Springbok and raised in Kimberley. Tell us about some of the ways that those places influences and how they influenced your work. I used to cry a lot when I had to come from my grandma's house from Springbok to Kimberley. I did not like the place. I did not like the Afrikaans. It was Lilaka Afrikaans. But uh, for me, the Makulan was freedom. You can play in the field, you can climb on the mountains, you can go to the beach. And then you come to Kimberley, it's so in between, like you don't exactly know what's happening there, and then my one poem I say, I'm too sturdy for Springbok and I'm too nama for Kimberley. So I had this difficulty fitting in, in these two places. But then I learned to embrace them both. And I can also now use the Kimberley Afrikaans, which I grew to love because that's how my brother speaks now, that's all he says, and you know, okay, this is Kimberley. And then in Springbok you say, then you know it's Namakolen. So those two worlds, I wanted to bring them together. And you did that so well. I really love both of your books so well. And mm -hmm. I just want to carry on with something that you said now. <laughs> I think it's quite common for a lot of people to not really like the place that they are raised in. Like we often hear people say, I just want to get my matric and leave, you know. Oh. I hate the small town. Let me get away. <laughs> I certainly had that same thing. <laughs> uh, and I did. I finished my matric and I left and I went to go study at drama school. And it was in my second year at drama school where we did the Afrikaans production that year was Adam Small's Kanahe Koheistu, mm. which is a brown writer writing about a colored place in a colored you know, language. And this was the first time that I'd ever encountered Adam Small's work, which in itself is a shame because we should be learning mm. about that man in Kresh already. Mm. Mm. But anyway, so I, 
I wasn't a big lead role in this play. I was <laughs> second year, so the fourth years got all the lead roles. Mm -hmm. So they had to, you know, the, the main actors got to work with Adam Small's characters because that's what he wrote on the page. Whereas me, I was a background extra. Uh, and that was actually very interesting because my task was I had to be different people in the community. You know, mm -hmm. just literally in the periphery. And so mm. to do that, I had to look back at my own community that I had left. So, you know, I'm leaving. Yeah. But I had to now look back at my own community and look at the people in the streets, the people that were in the periphery of my life. You know, Uncle Ivan across the road and the shopkeep and the boys playing Kenich in the street. And I had to sort of embody those people and transplant them onto the stage. So in doing so... I could finally recognize oh. the beauty, the artistic juice from my community, the characters that are so interesting, the language. And it really took moving away from the place for me to really fall in love and appreciate yeah. the place. And Linthia, you write about something like this in your poem, The Intellectualisme van Goed. So in the poem, you, it's a beautiful poem. Uh, and in it, you say you're sort of not at home. You're in a sort of intellectual space and you are so sick and tired of these Chopin sensitivities and philosophers like Foucault and Mbembe and Chomsky. And all you really want to do is go to the Northern Cape, to your mother's house in Jevol Flukwa. You want to hear Namakwalan swear yes. words and Nama music. <laughs> and then here's my favorite image of yours, Lindsay. One of my favorites in your book is the line is ik wil oom klas word vals kitaar speel met sy wijn by sy linke tekkie en sy dagga stompie by die rechte een. You know? <laughs> I love that image. But my question for you, Linthia, is when you were in the community before you sort of left to these intellectual places, when you were there and you saw an image like this man sitting playing false guitar with his dacha and his wine by his feet, were you able to recognize the poetry in that image or in that person, that sort of image at that time? Or did it take having to leave the community for you to be able to recognize that sort of beauty and poetry? It took having to leave because I used to sit there and think, oh, there's no hope for him. His wife says, I was a ear van gelas, now so you ear gelas. And you just, like, you just think there's no hope. He smokes dacha the whole day, he drinks, he doesn't work, he works now and then. So you think, oh, life is never going to change for some of us. Mm. But then you go, because I first went to study Portugstrom. And then you realize these are not my people. Yes. That's art in itself. I must listening to him just sitting there. <laughs> class. And he's always singing gospel, but he never goes to church. Yeah. And that's the things you just love. Yeah. I will I will not wait for anything. Like if I go to my grandmother's house now, I'll just sit there and listen to him. Mm. That's all I do. Because it's he's an artist. Mm. He's art. Mm. And it took going away to realize that what you really have there. Ah, I love that. Very nice. Um, let's talk a bit about publishing now because we've all got our books out. Uh, so when I got my contract for Kinnis Thai contract three years ago, I sat with that contract for so long because I wanted somebody to check if it is a legit thing. Is it a good deal? <laughs> 
But <laughs> at that point, three years ago, I had not honestly met an author with a book in my life before. Three years ago, I knew no other writers with books uh, who could check my contact. And I actually had to get a, a like an entertainment lawyer to look through it. Now, three years later, it feels like Amal Vatican hit a book. Everybody has a book, <laughs> you know, which is marvelous. Yep. And it's not just, uh, so I know so many authors now. And of course, it's because I'm in the industry. So I'm meeting new authors. But I'm talking about people that I've known for years, people like Mia Ardern and uh, Bianca Flanders. I've known them for 13 years and Kelly Eve Quirpman and Kim Van Vogel. We've all got these books now. And so, Terry Ann, do you think that there is an expansion of colored voices? Are we at the beginning of a colored literature renaissance? Um, you know, I'll, I'll answer this by saying how I got poached, I guess. So when I met Nadia Gutham, who is from Jakarta and was my publisher, and when she called me into the room for, you know, the initial, you know, like, we love your work. And, you know, you're so bad because someone's like, oh, my submission. And she says to me, I want to be very deliberate and clear with you, Terry Ann. I'm publishing your work because we need to start a colored canon of literature, of colored voices writing colored stories. And when I got into that mindset of then I started looking and I saw Mia Arden and Kim Van Vogel and, you know, and I was like, yeah, thank you, God. It's not uh, Ronaldo Kampfer and Raida Jacobs only anymore. We've got not only mm. just mm. a colored boom, but we've got a colored woman boom. And for yes. me, that is so important because I've got nieces and I've got my neighbors something something is 16 and she's at home and she's on Sasa and the child's going to be on Sasa and and I'm ready for her to see that your life right now is art and mm. you can take your life and there's people that can bring it out man I, I, Pratno, I'm going on and on but mm. yeah there is this big ass boom of mm. colored voices colored woman voices and I'm mm. so excited for it I'm ready for it actually yes it's by time me too uh, so so it, it seems almost <laughs> like literature is moving faster in its representation of diverse brown voices more so than maybe like film or TV or any other form and I think it's because we don't need hundreds of people to write a book or to make a book but how Having said that, it does still feel like it's a relatively small group of publishers and booksellers who are opening up this industry for brown voices. We could actually name the publishers at this point. You did. It's Nadia. It's uh, Quela, Catalan, and Stevlin, really. Uh, so, Lenthia, you do name this. You speak about this in your poem, Clear Com Alien. And in this poem, mm. you sort of list a series of, of racist moments. And included in them is this line. You say, Clear Alien Com, meti du cent sam, wat for jou say, jy moet jou week na a sekere uitgewe stier, hulle soek brein skrywers. So let me just translate that for our English listeners. You're talking about a lecturer telling you to send your work to a certain publishing house because they are looking for brown writers. So tell me about that line in the context of the poem. And what do you think about these publishing houses who are looking to publish brown writers, you know, specifically? I was, I actually wanted to choke that woman when she told me that. But now you can't choke it in face. Mm -mm. <laughs> so I just stood there and I thought, 
Yeah, don't force Nux on my me. Yeah? So you have you've read my work, but you just say they're looking for colored writers, so go there. Never mind if it's good enough for all of the mm. other publishers. Just go there because I love Suki Brainers. But the other thing that I I get the broorki do it under. I despise mm. it. When you read new articles about uh, new books coming out, like say Ryan Pedros, then you see I come some with the group new brainstem. Go. Don't. Stop. Stop. I met this whole white box thing and I said, I can see a brain scraver me. And I underlined the brain. Because stop giving my art a race. Yes, I am colored. But this book also speaks about sex, about love, depression. We all go through. So that's the thing with this whole boom and all of us writing and have our books out. It's beautiful. But now they're just saying, ah, colored writers. That's, I get mad. And you know, if I could just jump in, Yane, um, I, I understand why Lintia feels that way because I see it as well in, in, in the disability community. Mm. Once you exceptionalize something, you're saying it's never going to be normal. So mm. yeah, we've got this boom of colored writers. Listen, I am within and I'm loving it. But now we need to move away from saying colored writers and we need to just and, and move away from saying colored stories. I wrote a colored story. I was deliberate about writing a colored story. But I don't want mm. a sort a certain exceptionalism that is going to only make our work live in this box and say that we're not our stories aren't normal. Mm. Because once you mm. exceptionalize something, it doesn't move into the mainstream. Mm. It doesn't become ordinary. You don't get that person in a wheelchair that's an extra in Siavandalan. No, the person mm-hmm. in a wheelchair must have a plot mm-hmm. and it must be no. We, we just want things to be to blend man. Yeah. yeah. Also, you know, it could be seen as though, you know, this sort of colored thing is almost like a gimmick. If you're writing a colored story or caps, it's like a gimmick. But actually, you know, these books that you're reading, our three books, if I say so myself, are brilliant and they stand up against any sort of other language. The story is there, the characters are there. Like, we know how to construct a good book. The, the race of the characters mm. or the race mm-hmm. of you yes. is actually irrelevant, you know, uh, in, in terms of comparing it to other, to all the, the general yeah. literature scene. Uh, I'm going to actually ask you to to both read a bit uh, from both of your books. So I'm going to ask, let's start with you, Terry Ann. Uh, could you read for us from page 136? It's uh, Kaylin. Let me just give some context. Kaylin is one of the characters in Terry Ann's book, and she's, she's young, she's in matric, uh, and she's quite vase, she's quite wise of the world. <laughs> so Terry and let's let's hear what Kaylin has to say. Um, I'll start from the beginning of where she speaks. Um, and the context of this is that Kaylin is is a middle class um, girl in a working class world. So she says, I learned from my father that Aldous was founded in the mid sixties. It's no surprise that there aren't a lot of people that are from here. Everyone has a home to go to, a story about where they're from. I really like that. It adds character and mystery to the place. Some people moved here voluntarily, but others were thrown here as a result of forced removals. Nobody really talks about that around here. I had to ask my father about it after reading something in the library. The schools don't teach colored history. Let's be honest. 
The schools don't teach these things. They don't tell us anything. It's not just the forced removals. They need to teach us about slavery and the top system. They need to tell us about Ashley Creel, Chris Van Wyk, Sophie De Brain. Not everyone has a father that knows these things. Mm. Stunning. Ooh. Stunning. So true. So to the point. Love it. Thank you, Terry Ann. Can you tell us a bit more about that that? That piece that you just did there now, why was it important for you to write about these people? I must say their names again, Ashley Krill, Chris Van Beek, Sophie De Brain. Why was it important for you to put their names uh, into your work? Um, so for me, I only found out about um, my slave heritage when I stepped into the University of Pretoria, second semester history. And it was a white professor who started her lecture by saying Cyril, Cecil John Rhodes was a visionary, by the way. That's how she started the lecture. Hey. Yikes, I know. Then she goes and she starts speaking about slavery. And that is the first time, and this, I am 20 years old. I've been colored all my life, and I only hear about slavery in that setting from that person. And it woke up something in me. Because that was the first time I decided, you know what, I'm going to now write poems in my language, in the way we speak it at home. Because I'm, I don't want my sister, who's 10 years younger than me, to wait for 10 years to go learn about her history mm. in a lecture hall among 300 other students who are predominantly mm. white, being the only, I think we were three colored children in that class, from a white woman who believes that Cecil John Rhodes was a visionary. Mm. And that's what sparked everything. Mm. And I chose Chris Van Wyk because he's from Rivoli. And my father's mm. family is from Rivoli. And Rivoli is in Joburg. And nobody knows about Rivoli. And I chose Ashley Creel because I think all of our young people need to know that colored people were also involved in anti-apartheid activism. Yes. We were also there. We were also pissed. We were not mm. just reaping these benefits of the the biki, you know, mm. the biki that they gave us. And mm. especially in Joburg, where it was even more, uh, the, the lines between black and colored were, were very much narrower. So I wanted that to stand out. And with Sophie the Brain, our childhood doctor is actually Sophie the Brain's son. And I didn't know this. I didn't know nothing until my mom was like, this is who Sophie de Brain is. This is the march and this is, you know. Mm. And I feel like these, these things should be commonplace. I should be yes. bar that Sophie de Brain's child decided to open up a practice mm. in the heart of El Dorado Park, mm. you know. But it's not known. And mm. it makes me mad. As mm. a history student, it makes mm. me mad. Well, that is also something that I loved about your book, Terry Ann, is it does feel like an education. Uh, you, I, I'm learning. It's more than just about the story, but I'm also learning a lot from how you write. It's beautiful. Uh, Lynthia, you also deal with the same sort of thing. I love that you you specifically put these names, and I'm going to say them again. It's Ashley Creel, Chris Van Veek, Sophie De Brain, Dalcy September. I love that you put these names in your work because, honestly... Just by mentioning their names like this, we keep their memories alive, and that is life mm. after death. And for yes. people who don't mm. know who these who these icons are, they can now read 
in your book and yeah. go Google, go Google yeah. who are these people. And for people who do know them, we need to constantly be reminded of our icons. Nobody else is going to highlight and praise our icons except for us. So the exactly. fact that you put them in your work is so beautiful. Thank you so much. Linthea, can I ask you to please read for us one of my favorite poems in your book? I think it is my favorite poem in your book. Uh, Die Sabbat, please. It was our sister down. Kale to meer gesit. Ek moes klop. Siska het van haar handsa geslik. Mami het kom sê, man, man moet vir homself opskip. Siska moes vir Cairo keer wat weer die jaar vir haar klop. Ek het kaal sy glas om laat val. Die jere. Die red vir ou blank gedaan. Soos afsak in die grond. Ons het stil gaan raak. En raaien. Raaien het sonder op hom geklop. Terry <laughs> you know, Ann, Ann, does that sound like a domino game or like something that is uh, a Sunday afternoon in your in your life? Does that sound like a Sunday to you? Like when you were reading, because Aldous has got a lot of people from the Northern Cape. My, my gran herself was from Richmond. Mm-hmm. So I could just, I was there. I was there. I was inside of that. Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> that was, yeah. That was, I think that, that poem is my favorite as well. Yes, Zina. And you know what I like about this is, this is a very special thing that you've, that you've done. Yes, it's a domino game, but most people in the country have no idea what we're talking about yeah. when you say sauna opo klop of slutter milo, <laughs> but we do. We know what that means. And that is culture. That is culture. That is so culture. this, this is how writers document and define culture. And we as brown people who were so disconnected from our history, like we've mentioned, and we disconnected from our ancient practices and habits, we have this opportunity to define our culture in the present. And we as writers do so by taking note of these everyday small moments, like a domino game, mm-hmm. ritualizing it, heightening it, turning it into art and that is how it becomes culture so lenthia with that poem and with your all your work you are curating brown culture with your poetry you are showing us markers that say this is what we do this is who we are does this idea lenthia does this idea that you are creating and curating brown culture feel like a burden of responsibility or do you see it as an exciting duty or even an honor to be able to reframe and redefine brown culture with your work? I wouldn't see it as a duty, but I, you know, people, when when the first um, report came back from the first, what is a keerder in Engels, in any case, so, um, he said, the doge ringskatte rol van die breinvrouw, and I'm like, I never thought about this. But as you mention it now, you later see, oh, my dominoes, once I'm a club, we all club, mm. we have the intellectual lesmo fun, and then it, it gets me excited. So you can share, you're gonna see, oh, well, you ne- you're not gonna find any colored person who doesn't know how to play mm. the, the game dominoes, or they know about mm. it. And even like you get angry, it's just yes. seeing you get excited. <laughs> but I love, it's not a burden for me, it's just being honest mm. in your art and showing to other people, this is my life and this is what I am. Mm. Beautiful. And I think because there are so few voices at the moment, 
you know, specifically representing, uh, or not even representing, writing about a place like the Northern Cape, it does almost feel like you are representing, mm-hmm. you know, an <laughs> entire community, you know. Uh, but but I, I'd like to ask you, Terry Ann, with your book, one of the first things you notice when you read your book is the style. And it's quite experimental in how you wrote it. Like, it starts off with a sort of almost poetic narration, which goes throughout the book. Then you have your five lead characters who speak in first person. But some of the characters' words are written as diary entries. Some are sort of phone conversations. And often the reader is privy to only one side of the conversation. So you've made some like very exciting and interesting writing choices. Can you tell us a bit more about your writing style? In your book. Yeah, man. Um, I in 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 third year, I decided I wanted to write. I got this fascination with soliloquies and, and monologues, and I thought, oh, I'm going to be a playwright one day. And I wrote this little short story collection about a girl who fell pregnant, and everybody's opinions about this pregnant colored girl. And it even included like a conversation between two white women on the bus about how this got it, and then. When I decided I'm going to write a novel, I was like, I really liked that. Hearing stuff only from one side and you then making up your uh, conclusions. Because is that not how it goes in the community? Is that not how it goes in, 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 in the street? You didn't even say nothing matters. Who kijk daar? Deine sikke en poppie sikke. Sy het van die vaasity afgekom en kijk nou hou sy vaas vol ou gat. And you know, that is now the, you, you don't mm. ever get to say anything about yourself. Everything is always said about you in the community. And I wanted to in like to mm. almost do like an inverse of that where these women they are speaking about them for themselves for the first time ever, especially in a character like Janice, who is your statistic. A person like Janice in the community would never speak for herself. You'd hear about Janice. You'd hear about how jacks she is. You'd never hear from her. So I really wanted to bring um, that out in my writing style. And I'm not going to lie to you. I didn't know how people would receive that at all. Well, it's it's an interesting, very interesting reading experience. But also, uh, you've made the, the sort of men the, or the male characters in the book. They don't really sort of speak for themselves. You know, they they are also their stories are also told through the voices of these women. Uh, tell me about that choice. So that was also very deliberate because I feel like mm. you you know, Uncle So and So who drinks and then beats his wife and you know but you never know how it really affects that wife and I wanted to not give the abusive character a voice in such a way that I didn't want him to be able to explain himself I didn't want there to be that room for you to humanize him in because he is so humanized in real life that in this book I wanted people to see how Mm. it affects the women in his in the woman in his life, the children in his life, from their perspective and their point of view, and and also the other male characters. I felt like in in fiction we have women rarely saying anything. So why don't we just have men rarely saying anything? Like let's try that out. You know, let's see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
I love that. I love that. Uh, and, and just to carry on, you know, this this domestic violence plays a large part of Bertha's story in your book, for example, Terry Ann. But Linthea, you also write about that same sort of gender-based violence in poems like Swaich in your book. I write about this violence in Kinnis, and over 60 years ago, Adam Small wrote about that same abuse in Kanaekoheistu. That's over 60 years ago, so it's a testament to how persistent and chronic this toxic masculinity disease is in our community, but also just in our country as a whole. So I want to talk to you, Linthea, you know, for people who experience or encounter this sort of violence in witnessing it or, or having it happen to them as a child, it's linked to a lot of trauma in the body. And we all, lots of people suffer from PTSD because of it. So, for example, when I was young and I, the violence was happening in my house, my mother would always come to me and she'd, she'd sort of calm me down by being like, it's all for your book. Just put it in your book. You know, eventually you'll write about this. So I've sort of always had that filter in my life where I'm like, whatever ugliness is happening in front of me, uh, I can be an alchemist and turn it into art, you know. Um, so it's also quite dangerous to write about these things because you don't want to trigger yourself or re-traumatize yourself by going back in your mind to these moments. So, Linthea, how were you able to write about this type of violence and put these experiences on paper without harming yourself or re-traumatizing yourself by going back there? Was writing about it healing or helpful in any way? Um, let me use an example. I entered a competition a few months ago, and okay, they um, sent me an email earlier this week. I'm a finalist, and and, and the poem is about my father. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and the poem is about my father. We don't have a really close relationship. And I wanted, when I saw the poem again, I wanted to cry because it still hurts me. You know, I just wrote the ach, daddy, oh, but... It hurts, mm. and you write it down, and when you come back to it, it's like, some things are never going to change. I'm never going to be his favorite. I'm never going to be the person he expected me to be. And it's just, you sit there and like, I'm actually exposing my family's issues, and I'm reminding myself about the relationship that's not a good one. And by writing it down, yes, I turn it into art, but for me, the thing is just, just going back and this is the thing for me that some of these things, they never change. The more mm. things change, the more they stay the same. Mm. You still hear of man that a repetition in rapture, the oppressed becomes the oppressor uh, in Stoich. Mm. He's getting oppressed and then he oppressed his wife. Yes. It's, mm. it's just a sick circle and it's not going to come to an end. Mm. Mm. So, I mean, practically when you, when you, do, when you do write about it, do you do anything to sort of, like, do you maybe light a miang stick? <laughs> you know, that's something I do. Just to, like, sort of, <laughs> to make me go, okay, this is going to be fine. I'm safe now, you know, while I'm writing about it. Or do you just dig in and just put it on the page? You know, the, the, the nicotine is a good thing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Calms me down. And also in Vino Veritas. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But anyway, so it's... I don't like it writing during the day. I, I'm not a, mm. 
very tight person. I like yeah. sitting alone at night and then writing. Mm. And that's my process. Uh, Anne Sexton said, you shouldn't worry. Poetry is still first. Alcohol and cigarettes follow. That's my <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm calmer at night. And uh, mm. that's how I go through my work. and sit there. I'll write a few things during the day. But at night, everything comes to me. And then I'm like, calmer. I want to see the stars. And that's the thing about the Northern Cape. Mm. It's, you don't have tight build, buildings next to each other. It's open. And, we, and I live opposite mm. of Fial. So yeah. you see everything there. So that's my happy place at night. Beautiful. Mm. Wow. So, so your, your place also is sort of helps you in a real practical way it calms you down so you can write about these hectic things uh, terry and a lot of what you write is also intensely personal how do you take care of yourself and write without harming yourself sure you know the funny thing is um as much as as, as those who live in cages is personal i was very deliberate about not weaving in an albinism story okay. deliberately mm. because yes you know there's a character with albinism in the book but it's so on the periphery like mm. you don't even notice it and that was very deliberate for me because i still can't write about albinism without not going into a panic or into mm. a you know it's still a a, a place for me where I'm just not going to go yet. And a lot of people are like, oh, but Terry, you need to write the stories about albinism. You have albinism. How are people going to? And I'm just like, um, not now. Not now. I can't do it because I. it will then mean I'd have to confront all of that trauma. Mm -hmm. And I'm not mm -hmm. going to do that right now. Um, so, yeah, that's like me avoiding almost mm. a writing about a personal topic. All of the other stuff in those who live in cages, teenage angst, mental illness, alcoholism, drug abuse, they are things that I have experienced, but it was never as personal mm. as my experience of being mm. a, a colored woman with albinism in a township. And even in the little poetry and short stories that I write, I still don't write about albinism because of that. Because I just don't think mm. I'm ready for, for the mental trauma that's going to come with it mm. yet. Mm. I think for me that this is what is so brilliant about writing fiction, uh, because if I if I had to just tell these, you know, stories about what happened to me in a nonfiction way, I'll just mm. sort of be giving facts. But the power for me in fiction is that I can go back to these moments and with fiction, mm. I can change things. I can give it my ideal ending. I can make it better for myself. So now... When I think back at those memories, because I've made it into work and made it fiction and changed things for my own benefit, mm. those memories have a different flavor. They don't burn as much as they did before I wrote about it. They are, the flame is, of course, still there. The pain is there, but it's much yeah. more like a cooler experience. So I think, um, I don't know what I would be doing if I didn't have writing and fiction to be able mm. to deal with all the shit. So um, true. <laughs> and I also have a good psychiatrist. That's a good psychiatrist, yes, professional help. I'm in the search still. You'll see on my Twitter, it's lit. But yeah, <laughs> good mental health care is, mm. yeah, it's so, so important. Absolutely. It is so important. Absolutely. Uh, I'm going to ask you to read again because I love you reading your work. Uh, let me start with Lenthea. Can you read your poem, White Privilege, for us, please? White Privilege. 
white privilege. Daar is die 28 en 26 gangs in my biertie. Hier loop CMC rond met broeke wat onder hulle sy gatte hang en gangs in hulle rugzakke nie. Daar is die vlaktes wat bindel het baie voorbij maas vir julle sy kinderse ooggrafte moet staan nie. Nie een bullet wat die kind tref nie. Een bier sonder nommers en spote, sonder vrouwens wat hulle sy lichame vertik verkoop, sonder mans wat hulle lewe uit die pijp uitrook. Daar is devils volkom jaar. Warm water en krane, kinders wat leer vergrade, een wit jere, wat die rondroep met een mes die ek wond in sy gezicht hee, wat die broodvrouw die draad nie, wat die hartel van Robert Bullets van die poeliese af nie. Wow. Listen, so, tell me about that poem, please. Why, why did you write that poem? It was, it was actually, me saying that, listen, not all privilege is white privilege. Because I always keep on young people telling me since young age, ah, jylle moet die boerese mense. Ah, jylle moet die boerese goed. You are automatically being other just because you don't have it that difficult. I've never heard a gunshot in my life. There's no gangs where I live. I grew up in a quiet area where people go to university and things like that. So that was my thing. Yes, there's privilege. And also the whole thing of white privilege. Don't just see that having this is white privilege. It is privilege. But people worked hard for this. And my thing was, how do I explain it? I was just saying that I acknowledge that I have privilege more than other people have had in their life. Mm. But then also that this is not just white privilege. This is people working hard. This is not old money working mm. for us. So that was my whole thing. Okay. Being othered by people who are already othered. That's so interesting. I must say because from me, from somebody who's in the Cape Flats, to read a poem from a, a colored person living in a sort of brown space saying, you know, there are no gangs here. There is no, there are no sort of gangsters with pants by their by the ankles almost and it was just like for me I was just like really really that are you really and so I want to I know that Terry Ann Terry Ann I'm going to ask you to read about the same sort of thing on page 31 Terry Ann from your book but I was just so surprised to hear that because of course for me in Cape Town gangsterism is a is a thing and i do hear the gunshots all the time and i am scared of them mm. and so for you to write about it you know i didn't read it as as a privilege almost i was just like it was an education i was like oh my word these places exist they are <laughs> you know they, they are, are colored people that can breathe they can breathe <laughs> <laughs> my god <laughs> let's let's hear from terry and terry and please read for us an extract from page 31 in your book Alrighty, this is once again Kaylin. Um, she says, people always tend to stereotype colored people without trying to understand why we do the things we do. I blame the gangster movies on TV. I blame the fact that there's no other alternative. That's all you see when you see colored people. Gangster movies and guns. In the eyes of other people, we are always loud, smokers, gangsters or drug addicts. People don't know what got us to this point. They don't know anything about us. They don't know that Aldous is a glorified labor camp. Jobs are hard to find and drugs are very easy to come by. It's a system that keeps us down and in despair. What did my uh, history teacher do again? Systemic oppression. That's what it is. Beautiful. So interesting because here again we have now a character who's in El Dorado Park 
who's saying, you know, talking about this gangster stereotype, which for me in Cape Town is a reality, but I'm more and more I'm talking mm. to you, I'm like, this is maybe not. So let me ask you, Terry, and can we talk a bit more about this gangster stereotype and specifically its implications in real life? You did mention this earlier about Nathaniel Julius, but let's just talk about that a bit more. So recently in El Dorado Park, Nathaniel Julius, a 16-year-old, was murdered by police, who somehow the police then blamed it on gang violence. But Terry and you, as someone who's from El Dorado Park, you said, no, this narrative sounds shady. This sounds suspect. I think you said there are no gangs in Aldo's. So can you tell us a bit more <laughs> about what happened? And, and how does this gangster stereotype play out in our systems and institutions and have real life implications like it did in the story? You know, this the Nathaniel Julius thing, um, you, I must try so hard not to swear, but... I think everybody from Aldo's in, in what I call the Aldo's diaspora and also from Eldorado Park, we were all just like um, reading the tweet that says the police blamed the shooting on gang violence. And I think there was a collective vadayal because we all just like, yeah, I see some people even like, Vanalas was a gang and Eldo's. And um, the last time we even had what we have more is like syndicates or organized crime sort of, but not gangs. And I found myself fighting with a person on Twitter because they decided that a drug syndicate is the same as a gang. And I even had to ask like my fellow Capetonian uh, colored people to just please explain that gang, it's a culture. It's a, it's a dress. It's a number. It's a, a, a language. It's a, you know, and that stereotype, and I'm not saying that Four Corners is not a brilliant movie. Listen, it's an amazing movie. But I think the moment Four Corners came out, it's almost like people that wanted to box colored people already. They had the tools to build the box. Because after that, um, you know, we were just called gangsters, clean gangster. Ooh, I gangsters van Eldos. And even in the book, I sort of write that a little bit in with Bertha referring to her nephew as a clean gangster. Like, it's so much in our language to equate coloredness with gangs. And Nathaniel Julius is the first time you see real life implications of what that means now. Um, that even we as colored people need to start being cognizant. Yes, we can reclaim whatever, you know, but this is how other people are now using this thing that, yes, exists and plagues Cape Town. And they take it and they spray it with manure everywhere. And then they decide that, okay, colored gang, gang violence, this 16-year-old boy with Downs, mm -hmm. Nohal, must have been involved in a gang. And if I can tell you something about Nathaniel Julius, he, he lives, lived, sorry, um around the corner from where my childhood home is. So I oh, I, I made this uh, joke to my mom. I was like, hi, if there was a gang war at the flats or by on boobies there, then my cousins would have most called and been like, hey, yalla, us hotties. So like, we would have known. Mm. <laughs> like, that's the ridiculousness of it all. Mm. Pissed me off because that is how the media representation fictional stories as mm. well because four corners i don't know if it's a true story or not but 
how fictional narratives about colored gang violence, how it starts creating this horrible truth for us mm. all now. Mm. So yeah, that's why I just thought I wanted to to bring that out. And I, I think as as uh, it is certainly my reality. So yeah, of course, you know, it's, it's very much at the forefront of my mind, the sort of reality of gang violence on the Cape Flats. So, you know, I'll put it in my work, but I love that you and Lynthia are also giving the other side, you know, because it's not like it's a lie. It's not like there is no gang violence on Cape Town. There, there is truth for me, but we especially need alternative narratives and you are bringing that, you know, so thank you very much. Let's talk about language, uh, Lynthia, in your book, as Afrikaans, it's an Afrikaans book, but it's sort of like a Namakwa Afrikaans, and you've also incorporated some Nama in your work. Tell us a bit about the language use in your book. Well, first of all, you can't speak Northern Cape Afrikaans and then not use those words. Like in our house, you don't say, give me a bit of tea, you say, go, mate. You don't say, ah, I hurt my elbow, you say, ain't no me tuniki. Wow. If, you, if someone's dirty, like he hasn't taken a bath in a long time, you say, Oh, I go, I go, Leah. Like, that is incredible. <laughs> wow. So, my boyfriend, he didn't understand what go is, and I don't know what other words. So, my mother was insulting me. My mother was saying I'm ugly or something. He's like, No, me, my bokey, my bok go. And I was like, That's dirty, you know? And he thought it was a compliment. <laughs> But that's the thing. The way we speak our Afrikaans, you can't come up with if the, mm. you can't use Afrikaans from mm. the northern mm. Cape where I come from, and then not use Amawa. Well, it's just part of mm. the dialect. So so interesting because I've never heard that. I've never heard that, and I've certainly never read it on paper. <laughs> And and that is what I love about your book, Lynthia. Like, thank you so much for putting this in the work. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Um, let me talk to Terry about <laughs> language a bit. Now, Terry, in, in your book on page 143, there's Kaylin and she's talking about these people who came from Cape Town. I'm not going to say who they are, but these Cape Townian visitors are there. And she says, and I quote, she says, first of all, I couldn't understand half of what they were saying because their accents were so thick and the Afrikaans is on white people levels and there was a lot of J going around. I should brush up on my caps if I'm going to survive Cape Town. Okay, so firstly, Terry and <laughs> do you relate to that? Is caps really difficult on the ear to hear? Caps is difficult. Really? Yo, listen, hey, listen, let me tell you, the first time I read Carps, I was like, you're looking for what is No, listen, you guys think Carps is like the standard. No, no, Carps is difficult. Carps is difficult. It's so difficult. And whenever we've got, so there's always like these people from Cape Town coming to others. And whenever we've got a Cape Tonia, it's like an event, even. It's like a... It's such a foreign concept for us just to hear the way Cape Townians speak. And it's because it's not how we speak. 
you know, our slang, like, okay, we have mm. Dala and whatever, but our slang has got a lot more sort of a van- yes. um, African vernacular, uh, Zulu yes. and, and Sutu words, you know? So we'll say, ah, mane, you know, and it, with you guys, you, you wouldn't No, we don't even know that, what that means. You know? Oh, it's too big. Of the nengas to big. Of you know. So it's it's so different. Like Joburg colored Afrikaans is it's more closer to blackness, especially mm. in the slang mm. that that we're going to speak. So whenever I hear someone from Cape Town, I'm just so fascinated. It's like it's like watching the History Channel for me because I'm just like, woo. <laughs> I think that is the assumption, uh, you know, that we brown and colored people across the land, we sound the same, we talk the same. But I mean, I love that the three of us are here now from elders from the Northern Cape, from Cape Town, and we're confirming it's not true. Listen, I <laughs> it's not true. way more with Munakau than I do <laughs> with mm. what y'all say. Like... Like, what is Munakao? Munakao is I cow we also we use cow here. Like my my cousin loves like I wear cow. But yo no, I'm sorry, no, no. It's a different thing. Which which is also so interesting because reading your book, um, Terry Ann, you've got the character Bertha. Bertha does not speak English like the other characters. She speaks Afrikaans, but her Afrikaans to me, although you didn't write it, uh, spelling it in caps, but that to me sounds like caps. She sounds quite, you know, almost identical to a character like my Mary in Kinnis. They sort of sound the same. So for me, reading your work and reading Bertha's language, I went, oh my word, like people all over the country speak like this, yet... I still call the way I write that mm. sort of language caps. And caps literally in English means Cape Town. So it's, it is it is very connected to mm. a place. Caps language, Cape Town language, Cape Town people. But considering that other people in the country also speak, or I don't know, the same, do you find that this word caps to sort of label a language is is does that feel like erasure like we are erasing uh, other people who are not from cape town in this sort of language i think use? i'll start with this especially now since we uh, uh, put capsule on the on the ice <laughs> in the previous question but I'll, I'll start by by saying this that i think there's a universal way that we as colored people who speak Afrikaans, because now you get to Durban and there's colored people that don't speak Afrikaans. But who, who, as colored people who speak Afrikaans, we can all, to the base level, understand each other. Yes, there's difference in the dialects and the whatever and the whatever. And I think that the way we speak Afrikaans as colored people is very different from the way 
white um Afrikaners or white people speak Afrikaans. So that now being called cops. It's cute, no? Because yay, finally the, the, we we know it's not being called buster or combice or any of the other derogatory nonsense they used to use to to refer to how colored people speak Afrikaans. But I do feel like you know, caps is caps, caps is summa and uki, and you know, and and caps is not go, mm, mm. which I did know what that meant, <laughs> but. Mm. Yeah, you know, that's not cops. And and, 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 and cops is not nenga of lenga of, you know, um, a knocker of a spinner. That is not cops. And I feel mm. like there is a certain yeah. erasure in these different geographical dialects that mm. we have among colored people. Because I can tell you now, I'm sure in Middleburg or, or, or Stanerton or, um, you know, the Enumpumalanga, um, they have their own way of speaking. And in, in even in Danville, in Mafeking, where my cousins live, they have their mm. own way of speaking. That's not the, the way we speak in Aldos. So I think there is, just by calling all colored Africans cops mm. and being like, yeah, I think that is, yeah, there is a bit of erasure mm. in that. Yeah. So so would it then be, you know, it would be fine for, I, I guess, someone who's from Cape Town, like me, to write and say this is cops. Then would it mean like somebody who's somewhere else writing in their dialect would have to come up with a new name? You know, or should I say it in, in mm. Aldous, mm. you span me no un, because you say, well, you No, said. but there you go. You said, I'll say it in Aldous. So, you know, maybe there should be a cabs and an Aldous and, a, you know, whatever. Oh, maybe, we, maybe we must just have a coloured language conference. Yeah. We are doing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask Lindsay. Lindsay, on page 58 of your book, you write a poem called For a One Lat and at the start of this poem, you've got a quote. No? The quote at the start of the poem says, Exteedikant universiteit to for a graad, die fokken kan kom a heiden terug. Which in English is, I sent this child to university to get a degree, and this fucking child comes back a heathen. Now, it's... My grandmother said that to me. <laughs> she did. And now, <laughs> Lynthia... The quote is from Anthea Julius. Who's Anthea My Julius? Mother. Your mother. My mother. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, <clears throat> and and Terry, and you just said your grandmother said the same thing. So, so both of your books deal with quite religious themes and, and like decay mensa. Mm. Now, I didn't grow up in a particularly religious household. I mean, we were Roman Catholic, and but all that means is we had a crucifix and one picture of the last supper on the wall but we didn't go to church or anything how like nice that. um how nice <laughs> <laughs> no but i remember i remember so clearly even though we weren't particularly religious but as a child having these questions about the bible and the stories if i'd ask someone in my house a question i would be told don't question Frani, Frani. No, you never question. It would be so shocked. And, and yeah. it was like, you must just have faith. You don't question it. Mm. And I'll never forget that. Um, so I'd like to ask both of you. This is a question for both of you. Let's start with Lenthea. How did you feel writing about religion, which is such a sensitive topic in our communities? Like you don't talk about it. You don't criticize it. So how was writing about that for you? First of all, I 
of all, I didn't want my mother to read the poem. Because you for God, you'd never want her party. Not at all. But it was just because when I went to varsity, I studied theology and psychology. And I just realized that this theology, this God I learn about is white and he's from the Enkrit Erk. And I have nothing there. Like, I don't seem, I don't find myself there. And so I got hurt religiously, emotionally, in the space that I was supposed to be protected in because of religion. And I, w- I was quite bitter about it. But later I just realized that I am allowed to walk away where I feel hurt or offended. Mm. And that was why I wanted to write this poem, just to say that I got hurt and I didn't, the, the God there was too white. I didn't see him as my God. I didn't want to study it. My mm-hmm. mother was so upset. She's like, you're supposed to be a Christian psychologist, not a philosophy student. But anyway, so, <laughs> <laughs> so that is like, you just realize and then it's like, I say to God, my God, my for one, but like mm. telling him, uh, you let this happen. Beautiful. And, and Terry, and with you, how did you feel about writing about the cake names and, and religion in such a critical way? Oh, I was ready. I was ready. Listen, <laughs> I, I grew up in a very conservative Christian home. We didn't eat pork. We, we didn't pierce our ears. Nothing, 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 nothing. And here was me. I was a very questioning child. I was a mm. very curious child. I had imaginary friends. They used to always say, mm. So, you know, I was that weird child. And even at church, because I, I grasped concepts very quickly. And I always used to be like, no, man, but why did Jesus do A, B, C? And then you know, they'd even like say, no, I became an outcast in the church and I was bullied by people my age in the church for having albinism. Nobody would want to be my friend. Nobody would want to be seen with me. And in our, our church was very classist. And if yeah. anybody from our church is listening to this, it's about time you knew. Our church mm. was mm. very classist. Um, you know, as if you had Kruzhara and you had Karhat and you know what, then you were classed a certain way to the people who had straight hair and uh, nice fair skin and cars and they were in the middle class and you know, mm. and we were not. I, I grew up in a four-room in Aldous with cruise hair and no car. So that was my first interaction with religion. That whole thing that I'm not good enough, not necessarily for God, but I'm not good enough for this community that claims to be serving God and that claims to have the truth. Um, and I was I I was fed up. By the time I went to varsity, I also studied theology. <laughs> um, I studied ancient culture studies, and when I learned about Jesus within mm. his context, I was like, I like this dude. I like this dude. And I remember telling my uncle very recent. My uncle was very conservative still. I told him, you know, uncle, Jesus was pro sex work, and you. Hey, hey. I stood the oh, gates of, of hell open. He's like, what did you say? I'm like, Jesus was pro-sex work. Like, that's who he was. And he was not having it. And yeah, I still do that. I'm still the rebel rouser in the family. I'm, I was the one to get my ears pierced first. I was the one to get an upper ear piercing first. I was the one, I, I'm the only one that wears makeup. But yeah, fuck. I, <laughs> man, <laughs> I, religion doesn't work for me. So I was really ready to start writing about it. Excellent. 
Thank you. Uh, and at the beginning of your book, you, you sort of say this is for elders. And, and at the end, you say this is for all the, you know, factory women who work in factories. So did you imagine people in Aldo's reading your book? And also for you, Lentia, I know in your book launch, you also said you wrote it for people where you're from to be able to read it, you know, mm. in their own languages. So are those sort of big concepts or, or big ideas of, you know, community people reading it? Did that affect your work at all in any way? I think for me, um, I, I'd really want people from elders, especially young people, teenagers, to, to read it. And when I wrote it, it wasn't more writing for elders people. It was more for me a writing writing about elders people and then elders people reading it and going, oh my gosh, a tongue style. You know, it, and, and that was more like in my writing process, I, I wanted to, to write about the place in such a way that if you read it and you're from elders, you have a pride for your not only your place but your community mm. and in with the factory workers that for me is so special because i grew i was raised by factory workers my grandmother worked in a factory my aunt worked in a factory i've while well, still even to this day works in a factory all the ladies in the bus the ladies in the street all I hate that word ladies, sorry, mm -hmm. the women in the bus and in the street, they all worked in factories and they were the women that made me and they were the women that are often ignored because whenever you read about the working class woman, you read about either a domestic worker whose story needs to be told or a homemaker, but you never read about this coarse, loud mouth factory worker auntie who has to go and take the shit of someone who just made his son the manager when she's been working there for 15 years. You know, I wanted to bring that um, out and I wanted those women that if they pick up the book to go, yeah, but for real, you know, so that's how I write. For me, it was just like when I wrote, I don't have someone specific in mind, but when I especially, I think it, it really like sunk in when I saw the book and I realized people are going to read my book. And I just didn't want the academia to read it and mm -hmm. analyze and compare to Sylvia Platt and <laughs> here she writes about Anne Sexton and this theorist and the one woman wrote, wrote the thing that's about uh, I don't know the philosopher even and, and I thought I never meant that I mean if you go to Springbok you are used to people saying when my, when my father's sister used to do it you come from your other grandmother's house and she doesn't want mm -hmm. you to be there she doesn't so she says by love night we are all used to that and then people can see like I had a conversation with a doctor he has a few published books and he's like um he speaks about the rule of web pages and I'm like what is a rule of web page he speaks about no there's pilot um websites where we download movies and he's like yeah but when your book is here you wouldn't want people to just make copies I said with all due respect doctor if you can't afford to buy yeah. my book I will yeah. not have a problem with you making a copy to go read it at home it's for those people, for people yeah. that have a passion for I, books are expensive, but I, I, especially for young people, like realize depression is there and it's okay to have depression. We don't teach that enough. We guilt trip them, we shame them, and then you think, oh, this is wrong with me. And only later in life you realize, but this is a disease like any other. So that was a thing for me. People who cannot afford a wide literary canon, but also the issues such as poverty and um, mental illness. 
I love that. Let me ask you the final question um, that I have for you today. You finished your book and the work is now out there. Your job is almost now mostly clear. Um, but what was something that you learned about yourself throughout this process? Now that you finished and you look back and you go, okay. I just realized I underestimated myself so much. Mm. I did mm. not think anything is good enough. I didn't think a publisher is going to want to publish the book. I'm so shocked when I see people praise the book and saying that I'm an important new voice. And I just thought, Lanthia, but you're getting the technician accepted. Not at unsuck and I'm far. Where is good? So for me, I just realized that I just have so many doubts in myself. And this just proved to me that I underestimate myself a lot. And now do you feel more like never again? Like, I'm great. No, I would, I would say never again. But then when I look at this one, you know, like, Yes. <laughs> listen, listen. My, like I said, I book it my banana slat. I just have to say, I eat my banana slat ban. Oh, I, I I love that collection. No, um, for me, yes, this book was the culmination of every no, of every you're not good enough, of every you can't play with mm-hmm. us anymore. This book was just that sort of f you to all of those people. Um. And yeah, that that was it for me. It was like, yeah, I can actually look back and look at everybody that teased me when I was younger and still write about them with care and not bring that out in the book. Because my greatest tormentors came from this community that I wrote about with such care. And it, it really showed me that I didn't get over it because you don't get over trauma, but I could at least do that if you with grace. And with strength. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Lynthia, Julius, and Terry and Adams. You have blown my mind today with this amazing discussion, and your work is so beautiful. Remember, Lynthia Julius's book is called Eight de Cruz, and Terry Ann's book is called Those Who Live in Cages. My book is called Kinnis, and you can get all three of these books at the book lounge. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you. Thanks, Chase. Thanks, Lynthia. Bye. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. This wraps up our third week of the series, and we kick off the final week on Monday with an episode that features authors David Mitchell and Lauren Birkus in conversation with Jen Malik. David Mitchell is the Booker Prize shortlisted author of Cloud Atlas and most recently of Utopia Avenue. Lauren Birkus is a best-selling South African author who has won the Arthur C. Clarke Award and whose most recent book is Afterland. This podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, the Heinrich Bull Foundation. The Heinrich Bull Foundation has been actively promoting the consolidation of democracy and human rights, advancing gender equality, and taking action to prevent the destruction of the environment in Southern Africa since 1989. The Foundation's work in Southern Africa consists of four programs, democracy and social justice, human rights and gender justice, sustainable development, and international politics and dialogue. Our fabulous producer is Andri Bonnet. As always, I'm Fasti Khalitz, listening with you to the Open Book Podcast Series.